a.m. Welcome back to the 2 a.m. Book Review Club, where we stay up late talking about books or talk about books that made us stay up late. As promised in my most recent State of the Pod episode, we are trying out new formats on this podcast, new episode formats. And this month, that's right, I said this month, not this week, this month we are testing out a variation of our classic, venerated, renowned, all right, I'm done being dramatic, our usual three books and a theme episode format. Instead of talking about three books in a single episode, we'll be covering one book each week this month. And then, of course, all three books will be tied into a single theme. This month, our theme is kind of dark. It's World War II books set in Paris. Historical fiction books about World War II that take place in Paris or at the very least have Paris somewhere in the title. You know what I'm talking about. You've seen the books that are titled the Paris noun, you know, whatever noun, the Paris blank. Today's book is The Paris Architect. Next week, we'll be talking about The Paris Orphan. You get the idea. There are so many of these books, so I thought it would be interesting to check some of them out and see what all of the excitement's about. What is all of this hype around books titled The Paris Blank? And of course, as always, our main focus will be on how these books tie into our overall theme. Speaking of which, let's discuss our theme for just a minute, World War II Paris. I know that in the past, I have been a little annoyed personally, like walking through a bookstore or whatever and seeing just how many books take that particular title format, the Paris blank, the Paris noun, in the same way that I've been a little annoyed by how there was a period of time when so many fantasy and historical fiction books centered around women were all titled things like the blank's wife, you know, like the time traveler's wife or the blank's daughter. I actually read one of those books like last fall, The Locksmith's Daughter, but we're not here to talk about that. I was about to like offer some of my thoughts on that book, but I realized that I actually have a surprising amount to say about it, so I'm not I'm not here to do that today. Anyway, however, despite being annoyed by how many books have this particular title format, The Paris Blank, I'm not surprised that there are so many books that deal with this theme because from a writer's perspective, I do understand how World War II Paris can seem like a particularly interesting place to set a book in. 
on the surface, you have the Nazis occupying the city, and then you have the French government who is who? Governments are not who. Governments are entities. They're not, they're composed of people, but they're not, you know, a person. The French government, which is cooperating with said Nazis. But below that, you have everything else that's going on. You have the resistance movement, so many freedom fighters, the whole underground movement. You have the ordinary French people who, you know, they feel they may feel many different ways about the situation. They may hate the Nazis. They may just be Nazis. They may be, well, I don't want to say indifferent, but some people are, you know, just trying to make the best of whatever situation they're in. And to be honest, you know, I don't exactly blame them. I mean, how how would I react, you know, if people suddenly like invaded whatever country or city I was living in? I would probably just, you know, try to go about my daily life to the best of my ability. But beyond all of that, you also have the history, the very recent history between France and Germany. In that particular time period, remember, World War I had only happened 20 years earlier, so there were still plenty of people alive who fought in World War I. And so you have a lot of veterans who fought to keep France free during World War I, and now they're like, well, I guess all of that was for nothing. And that's not even bringing into account what happened after World War I, when the French government and really the French people demanded reparations, financial reparations, from the Germans. They were like, you know, you put us through this horrific war, so now you got to pay for it. And they demanded so much money from the Germans that it ultimately bankrupted the entire country. And in many ways, that situation, that financial situation, led directly to the current situation, World War II. Because remember, Hitler would probably never have been able to rise to power if he hadn't been playing off of the in a way, legitimate feelings of German people who are like, you know, my country's in financial ruins, you know, I've got no savings left, I've got no job, inflation's going crazy, what do I do now? Remember, Hitler's appeal to those people wasn't so much the whole, like, Nazi ideology so much as he was like, hey, you know, I can help financially repair this country. But anyway, my point here is just that there are a lot of factors going on in this situation, a lot of different feelings from the French towards the Germans and vice versa from the Germans towards the French. And because of that, there are so many different people in this situation. So many people who have different beliefs and opinions and ideas and ideologies, and they're all mixed together in this very, very tense situation. 
And there are a lot of story possibilities there, a lot of different character types and character personalities that you can create from just the situation, from the distinct groups that lived in Paris at the time and the complex ways in which they would have interact interacted with one another. So given all of that, you can probably see why if you're a writer, it's a really interesting starting point for writing a novel. And then if we focus for a moment just on the way that these books are titled, The Paris Blank, I know I said earlier I was a little annoyed by how many of these books had that particular naming convention. And I still think it's kind of annoying, but you do have to acknowledge that it's a very effective way of titling a book. When you have the word Paris in the title, what do you think of? You think of elegance, sophistication, fashion, culture, art, all of that fancy stuff. Whatever noun you have after that, the word Paris immediately dresses it up, makes it all fancy. But then you read the description of the book or you look at like the cover image of the book and you realize that this book isn't just about Paris, it's about World War II Paris. And then you have this idealized image of Paris that is juxtaposed with the very real horrors of World War II. It's very dramatic, it's very effective. I can see why it got overused. But beyond that, when you put a city name in the title, it immediately centers the human aspect of the book. It makes the book seem individualized and grounded in a way that would be hard to accomplish otherwise. So not only are we talking about World War II, not only are we talking about Paris, but we are talking about the lives of individual people caught up in this situation, World War II Paris. So that's our theme, our through line, living through the Nazi occupation of Paris in World War II. And that comes loaded implicitly with all of the usual themes that authors like to use these kinds of war books to talk about. Brutality, kindness, compassion, loss, the best and the worst of humanity. And just in general, how people have to keep on living, as I said earlier, regardless of the circumstances in which you find yourself, as a human being with living, breathing needs, the only thing you really can do is just keep on trucking. Well, I guess technically there is an alternative to that, but um, <laughs> that really wouldn't make for a very interesting story, would it? That that could be like a short story, but it wouldn't it wouldn't really be a novel. All right. With all of that background laid out, let's start talking about books. This week we're talking about our first World War II Paris book, The Paris Architect 
by Charles Belfour. This is not a new release or even a recent one. It came out in 2013, so 10 years ago, but it was the only book with this particular title format that I was able to find on Libby as an ebook. So here we are. Going back for a moment to what I said earlier about the effectiveness of this particular title format, the Paris noun, let's talk for a moment about this particular title, the Paris architect. These two words, in particular Paris and architect, are such an effective combination because when you think of Parisian architecture, you're thinking of Notre Dame, you're thinking Arc de Triomphe, uh, I, I butchered that, sorry. You're thinking of the Louvre, you're thinking of all these iconic, historically and culturally significant buildings and structures. But then you have to put it into the context of World War II. World War II Paris, and you're wondering what kind of an architect would be able to survive that? What would this architect be building? Who would they be working for? What kind of story is this going to be? As it turns out, our architect, the Paris architect, is working for both sides, kind of sort of, and I'll get into that later, but he's a bit of a double agent. He's working for the Germans, the occupiers, the Nazis, building factories where they build war equipment to, you know, do Nazi things. But at the same time, he's also building hiding places for Jewish people so that they can hide from the Gestapo when the Gestapo come knocking to, you know, take them away and do Nazi things. Because he's an architect, he's an expert at analyzing houses for potential hiding places that the Germans are unlikely to think of. Because, you know, the Gestapo, they're going to come in, they're going to be tearing apart furniture and tapping on walls and looking behind bookcases. So the architect, he builds these clever little compartments and hollows out pillars and so on. So as you can probably guess, this is a thriller because he's essentially playing both sides and that's unlikely to make you many friends, especially during a war as intense and vicious as World War II. And, you know, putting that aside, just, you know, trying to help Jewish people in a Nazi-occupied city, I mean, I can definitely think of safer professions. Okay, so as you can see, both the title and the premise are very interesting, very compelling, and I think that this book is a good place to start our journey into World War II Paris books. At this point, I am going to put in my usual spoiler warning, my usual spoiler alert, spoilers ahead if you continue. Mostly minor spoilers, but also 
Also a major spoiler for the ending of the book, so you have been warned. Alright, so, as is pretty clear from the premise, this story takes full advantage of the political climate of World War II Paris, not only in the storylines, but also in the construction of the characters themselves. Our protagonist, Lucien, the Paris architect, is a pretty complex character. At the beginning of the book, he's not a fan of the German occupation, but not really because they're Nazis, but just like because they're Germans. And at the same time, he's also not a fan of the resistance movement, and he's definitely not a fan of Jewish people. His dad was very, like, anti-Semitic, and so he's inherited a lot of the same ideas that his dad had. Lucian is also incredibly self-centered. He's the kind of guy who's cheating on his wife, and just in general, he's, he's the kind of person who's only concern is his own survival and his own ability to live a good life, a comfortable life, as comfortable a life as he can have in a Nazi-occupied city where it's very hard to get anything that's not, you know, very, very basic things that you need to survive. Like, you can get food, but it's not nice food, you know what I mean? So... Is Lucian a good person? No, <laughs> he, he is not a good person by any standard that you can try to measure him by. He's not a Nazi, but that's only really because he's not a fan of Germans. Does that make sense? However, I do think that he is a fairly representative portrayal of a certain number of people living in Paris at the time. Most ordinary citizens, as I said earlier, who find themselves caught up in a war situation, particularly like a situation where the enemy is occupying like where you're living, most of the time ordinary people in that situation aren't particularly concerned with justice or fighting for their country or how anybody else around them is doing. They're mostly going to be concerned with their own survival and staying out of trouble. And on top of that, you have to remember that anti-Semitism was a prejudice that ran very deep in European society. And really, it was only after World War II where we discovered the concentration camps and all the horrors of the Holocaust that people started to be like, wait a minute, you know, maybe anti-Semitism is bad because, you know, it, it leads to this. The end result of prejudice is genocide. And, you know, maybe that's not such a good thing. But, of course, I do have to acknowledge it wasn't just like a European thing, right? I mean, plenty of people in the U.S. at the time were also anti-Semitic. Jewish refugees were mostly kept out of the U.S. during the war. There were even situations where Jewish refugees would, like, try to come to the U.S., but they would literally be kicked out and told, 
go back to Europe. And well, that that was that was not a good result for those refugees. And, you know, it's all very sad. But I think that this character of Lucian with his prejudices does reflect that there were certainly lots of people at the time who thought this way. Like, they're Jewish people, you know, like, what, who cares about them, essentially, you know? Terrible thing to think, obviously, but that was, that was how it was. So, at the beginning of our story, Lucian is a deeply flawed, pretty, pretty unlikable character. Now, you might be wondering, if he's so self-centered and prejudiced, prejudiced, then how does he become the person who's described in the premise? This double agent who's helping hide Jewish refugees. And, surprise, the answer is actually, he's too self-centered. That's how he ends up in this situation. Let me explain. That's probably a little confusing. So at the beginning of the book, Lucian is basically unemployed. There's not much demand for architects in the middle of a war. You know, wars are generally about tearing things down rather than building things up. However, the inciting incident for everything that happens to him is he's approached by this wealthy businessman named Manet, not Monet, like the artist Monet, but like Monet with an A, who offers him vast amounts of money in order to construct hiding places for Jewish people who are hiding from the Gestapo. The Gestapo is rounding up anyone who's Jewish and, you know, hauling them off to concentration camps. Camps, But, of course, you don't actually need to be Jewish. You can just, you know, they can just decide you look Jewish and just haul you off. And part of the reason for that is because... There were actually people in Paris who were helping hide Jewish people, especially children. They would hide them in their homes or, you know, pretend that, for example, like the kids were like their relatives, you know, or whatever. And obviously they did this at great personal risk to themselves. There are several scenes in the book where these Jewish refugees are discovered and the entire household is either taken away or murdered on the spot. And a major focus of the book is people who are willing to risk their lives for complete strangers versus people who look the other way and pretend not to notice what's going on, and in particular, what motivates both sides. Anyway, so Lucian is not particularly keen about helping Jewish people, but he is very tempted by the large amount of money that Monet is offering him. Because, as I said earlier, he hasn't exactly been getting a lot of work and everything in Paris is very expensive because most of the nice stuff is on the black market. And, you know, they don't sell you things cheap on the black market. So this money means that he's able to afford nice things and have a standard of living closer to what he had before the war. There 
there's a lot of back and forth between Lucian and Monet because Lucian knows how insanely dangerous it is for him to be doing this, constructing these hiding places. And even though the money's nice, what he values most is his own life and his own safety. So after the first job, Lucian's like, I'm not going to be doing this anymore. You need to find someone else. But Manet keeps luring him back in with like promises of more money. He even gives Lucian like a car at one point. And he also offers Lucian legitimate jobs building factories or designing factories for the Nazis because Manet is also something of a double agent. He has all of these legitimate business dealings with the Germans, but at the same time, he believes that what they're doing to Jewish people is incredibly wrong. And so Lucian's very tempted by the money, but actually like a big factor of why he agrees to help is not just like the money, but it's also like he wants to get back at the Germans. You know, as I said earlier, he doesn't really like the Germans. And also there's this side of Lucian that's very like arrogant and gosh, he's in a lot of ways, like throughout the book, he does improve but he remains such an unlikable character most of the time, which is fine by me. Honestly, I like those kinds of books. But if, if you're looking for a book about likable characters, this is definitely not the book for you. Anyway, so yeah, Lucian is very arrogant. And a big part of what motivates him to keep on doing this is he's like, I'm so good at this. You know what I mean? Like designing these hiding places. And I really, really, really like outsmarting the Germans and he's very confident that he can continue doing that and so that confidence in himself is a big part besides the money of why he keeps on doing this and so Lucian is sucked in deeper and deeper into this world that he knows is really dangerous and he doesn't really want to be a part of it but yeah, you know, he, he keeps doing it anyway because of the various parts of his character that kind of motivate him to do this in the first place. And over time, as he keeps on doing this, he begins to realize that these people he's helping are, you know, people. And there, there are several reasons for that. One is he accidentally like talks to one of them at one point, one of the Jewish refugees, even though a condition of his in the beginning was like, I never, never want to meet these people, never want to know anything about them. But, you know, it kind of happens at one point. He's like, oh, this is, this is a human being just like me. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's really not funny. But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, you know, like we're all, we're all just people, you know, and it's so frustrating when, uh, anyway, anyway, not the point. And that's the point. But then there's also this very sad scene where one of his hiding places has like this flaw. They don't get discovered, but they do end up like dying. And he feels really responsible for that. And he's like, oh my God, you know, like I killed people, you know, like I didn't, I was trying to protect them and they ended up dead. So yeah, he comes to realize that these refugees that he's helping to hide are just people. And so he begins to deconstruct these harmful prejudices 
that have made him passively complicit in what the Nazis are doing. Because as much as, you know, you like to be like, well, you know, these people are trying to like live their everyday lives at the same time, like, yes, but also if there are Nazis in your city doing Nazi things and you don't do anything about it, you're a little bit complicit as well. You know what I'm trying to say? And so as the story goes on, he begins to actively help these people, not just because he wants the money or because he wants to prove how smart he is, but just because he knows that it's the right thing to do. But unfortunately for Lucian, because he's essentially playing both sides, the resistance, who are the biggest anti-Nazi force, start to target him as well because they're like, hey, you're you're working for the Nazis, you know, you're building like factories for them. And so he does like end up helping the resistance at certain points, but he really, really, really doesn't like it. He hates the resistance because again, you know, he hears his dad's voice in his head and his dad's voice is like, you know, they're all just a bunch of communists. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This this isn't funny, but I... All right. Anyway, as you can probably tell, he is a very complex, very flawed character and, you know, not likable for most of the book. And honestly, even up until the end, there are certainly parts of him that are very, very unlikable. But for me, I actually think that's great. Personally, I love deeply flawed deeply flawed characters, especially when you have a setting that's so morally complex and where there are so many people who are like working together and working against each other and double crossing each other. And then of course you have people like Lucian and the resistance. They're on the same side, but they don't even know it, or at least the resistance doesn't know it. And I think that with this kind of story, there's a lot of potential in a morally ambiguous protagonist. And I personally really do think that Lucian's character is a real highlight of this book. In general, this book, The Paris Architect, is definitely a book that lives up to its name, which always makes me happy. I really don't like books that have exciting titles and then you read them and you're like, where did this title come from? Like, I guess it's tangentially related to the story I just read, but also not really. So anyway, but this book, this book definitely lives up to its title. It takes full advantage of the setting and the story possibilities that are inherent within that setting. And I think that even though this is a thriller, the pacing of this book being kind of slow is a really good choice because so much of this book isn't about like action. It's about Lucian's character development and the slow mounting of suspense as he willingly puts himself in more and more danger in order to do what he finally realizes is, you know, the right thing to do. 
However, having said all of that, yeah, there's still definitely a lot about this book that I do want to touch on and kind of criticize because I definitely, definitely did also have issues with this book. One of my biggest kind of issues that I had reading this book was the writing style. Now, I have said this before and I'll say it again, whether or not an individual reader likes an author's writing style is so completely, completely subjective. A reader not liking a specific writer's writing style isn't a reflection on the author so much as it's a reflection on the reader for engaging with something that just doesn't appeal to them. Does that make sense? I feel like if you like certain kinds of writing styles, it's a little bit on you to try to find books that mesh with that. If you like poetic writing styles, then you may want to search for authors who cater to that. Or if you like fast-paced writing styles, then you may want to search for writers who cater to that. Does that make sense? So as a reader, it's not anybody's fault that I don't like the writing style in this book. But at the same time, at the same time, I think that it is valid for me to complain about it because if you like the same kind of books that I like, then you probably will not like this book's writing style also. Does that make sense? It's more just of like a PSA moment than like, oh, I really didn't like this writing style moment. And the problem with complaining about this writing style is that there isn't anything objectively wrong with it. Because like, I feel like writing styles in general, it's really hard to say that there's anything objectively wrong with them. And the writing style in this book is mostly fine. It's nothing special. It's mostly fine. But it doesn't really feel polished in the way that you would expect the writing style of a traditionally published book to feel polished. And I do come armed with an example before you, you know, attack me. Here is a passage from chapter 11 where Lucian is talking to the Germans about his design for a factory. Lucian was simultaneously embarrassed and flattered by Herzog's defense of his design. He felt both good and bad that someone was sticking up for him when he should have been the one doing the talking. He had failed many times in the past when trying to defend a modern design. It had inevitably been altered into something more classically inspired. Either change it or lose the job and the fee. He was committed to the new modernism, but not that committed. One had to eat and pay the rent. Hopefully you see what I mean. There are parts where I'm just reading along and I'm like, yes, yes, yes. For example, this sentence, it had inevitably been altered into something more classically inspired. That part is fine. I have no, no issues with it. And then, so I'm reading along and then you get to the next part of the sentence, either change it or lose the job and the fee. And to me, me, right? Very subjective. Again, 
there's something tonally jarring. It's almost like there's a shift in the cadence or the rhythm of the style every so often that I just don't like. You know what I mean? It's like you have this very basic style. It had inevitably been altered into something more classically inspired. You're like, yes, my ear likes that. And then you reach either change it or lose the job and the fee. And it feels different. It feels like a different writing style. And so to my ear, I just don't like it. (laughs) And so when you have a writing style like this that you don't really like, it's hard to read for 600 ebook pages. And beyond what my inner ear is hearing when I'm reading this book, beyond that, there is a lack of complexity or nuance to the style itself. Like, for example, take this part of the passage that we just read. He felt both good and bad that someone was sticking up for him. It's fine, (laughs) but it's not the most subtle or effective way of saying it. Like, he felt both good and bad. It's fine. It's fine. But when you have what I feel is very careful character building, like with Lucian being this very morally ambiguous pretty unlikable character, it doesn't mesh for me with the writing style. And personally, I think that the writing style of this book could have used maybe another draft, maybe some more polishing. I don't know. I just, you know, like, as a writer, I don't believe that anyone is born knowing how to write in a style that's pleasing to the ear and also nuanced enough not to shout in your face like what it's trying to say. But I do think, I do think that as writers, we do owe it to our readers to try to work on our writing styles so that we can make the reading experience as pleasant as possible. Because the first draft of every book, like, the writing style is bad, you know, mostly, mostly. No, nobody has a good first draft, or very rarely. And so that's fine, right? We need to own that. We need to be like, yeah, hey, my first drafts suck. (laughs) But then I feel like you do need to revise. You need to work on it. You need to polish it until it's a good writing style. And for this book particularly, there is a really good story underneath the writing style. And the story is what kept me reading. Well, and also the knowledge that I wanted to do this mini-series on my podcast. But I personally just did not really enjoy the reading experience because of the style. And I feel like, you know, I feel like that's kind of a waste of potential. Okay, my next criticism is something that I know I hyper-focus on a lot, but I did not really like the way that women were portrayed in this book. Let me explain. So, Lucian is misogynistic, and that's fine. That's fine. Like I said, he is a man with a lot of prejudices, and I don't, emphasis don't, 
have a problem with that. Misogynistic characters are fine. You know what I'm trying to say? And, you know, if I wasn't, <laughs> if I wasn't fine with them, I'd have, I'd have trouble reading books in general because there's just so much of them out there with misogynistic characters. Anyway, not the point. My issue is that the narrative itself never really challenges that viewpoint in the same way that it challenges his preconceptions about Jewish people. There are three major female characters in this book. There is Lucian's wife. I don't remember her name. He cheats on her and constantly puts her down and she's not really a character except in relation to Lucian. I think she's in like one scene and then she leaves him, which good for her. But after that, she never appears in the story. We don't really know anything about her except that Lucian doesn't love her, hasn't loved her in a long time. I kind of question whether he ever loved her or even liked her. I don't think so. I think I think it's in the book that he just married her because he, he was like, you know, like he wanted to sleep with her. Yeah, so she doesn't... I mean... She's not really a person, you know? I don't really have anything to say about her except I don't like that she's not a person. So yeah, they they have a terrible marriage. She leaves him. She's never in the story again. Very complex female character. A plus job writing a female character. All right, and then we have Lucian's mistress, Adele, who is this... Oh my god. Okay. Adele. Adele works in fashion. I think she like runs a fashion house or something and she is so shallow. She is even more self-centered than Lucian, which is quite the accomplishment. Unlike Lucian, she has no morality whatsoever and she's also a Nazi. So there's that. And I think her character in particular is so representative of the double standard that's going on here. One standard applies to the male characters in this book, and a completely different standard applies to the female characters in this book. So Lucian being self-centered and focused only on himself and his survival and him wanting like the little comforts of life, that's fine. He still has room for redemption, but when a woman is the exact same way, it's treated like the worst thing in the world. I think what I dislike in particular is this implication that Lucian has some kind of moral high ground over Adele. And yes, he is helping to hide Jewish refugees and he is slowly rethinking his harmful ideologies that he, inher that he inherited from his father. But, but, but... He is still helping the Nazis. He is still designing factories that are helping the Nazi war effort. Regardless of any everything else, including like 
yes, yes, Adele is is a Nazi, essentially, in her ideology. Like, she agrees with them. She sleeps with them. But she's not actively contributing to the war effort. She's not actively arming the Nazi army. And regardless of whether Lucian's good deeds outweigh the moral consequences of, you know, the whole aiding the Nazi war effort thing he's got going on, I don't like that his mistress, Adele, is so demonized. And here we go, okay? Here's the thing that I particularly dislike. So we got her, we got her character, Adele, the mistress, the evil, evil woman. All right, but she is not Lucian's endgame love interest. Um, because, you know, she's a Nazi and Lucian falls out of love with her, which is fine. Lucian's actual love interest is this woman named Bet or Betty. I'd, I'm going to call her Betty. Her name is B-E-T-T-E, but I don't know how to pronounce that name, you know, for like a French person. So I'm just going to call her Betty. Sorry. Anyway, Betty, I'm going to go ahead and say this, but, um... I think she may potentially, possibly, allegedly be like a wish fulfillment character for the author's fantasies. And I'm not, I'm not judging or anything here, okay? I know, like I write romance, right? And there are so many romance books written by women where the male protagonist is just blatantly wish fulfillment like a fantasy and you know in my own books the love interest sometimes contains some of my you know personal like oh like it would be so great if there were someone in my life who was like this you know some attributes that are like just fantasy as well I admit it there's no judgment here we we authors we we write those kinds of characters all the time and you know also also, there's like a tendency, very obviously, for authors to write protagonists that are like idealized versions of themselves as well. And, um, you know, a lot of authors are very open about that. Like, yeah, this is the idealized version of me, but better looking. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a thing and that's fine. That's not the thing. That's not the thing I have an issue with, okay? We'll get to it in just a moment. Anyway, <laughs> I do want to say, however, that how obvious it is to me that Betty is like a wish fulfillment character, it's, it's kind of funny, not gonna lie. She is so gorgeous that everywhere she goes, all men, no matter what, are just like staring at her and like flirting with her. <laughs> um... And at one point in the story, Nazis, like, show up to her house. And do you know what she does in order, <laughs> in order to get them to, like, leave her alone? She answers the door in her lingerie. <laughs> she answers the door in her lingerie. And then she just, like, charms them into leaving. And I don't, I'm not trying to, like say this like a euphemism no she doesn't like do anything she just like 
is like oh my gosh you know like what are you doing here and then she's just like don't you have more important things to do and she like shoes them out the door and then you just like leave as a plot point in a book that is otherwise very dark like having graphic descriptions of torture dark in a book like that this particular plot point it feels so 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 out of place and just so blatant by the way yes this book does have graphic descriptions of torture if you're not cool with that like nazis torturing people you may want to skip this book yeah anyway beyond being hot she is also and this is the annoying part for me She's incredibly good and self-sacrificing and moral. She's got these two, two Jewish kids hiding in her house and she loves them with all her heart. <sighs> do you see do you see what I have going on here? It's like this this angel demon thing that is so annoying because it's like women can either be like the devil incarnate or they can be like a literal angel but there's no middle ground there's no there's no possibility that women can just be flawed characters like lucian male characters are afforded the grace to redeem themselves to grow and to learn as human beings women they're either perfect from the get-go like from the word go or they're irredeemable you may as well just toss them overboard there are lost cause. Oh, and also like Betty, she's like, her whole thing is being like very strong and clever and you know, all that. But then like, you know, she she needs Lucian to like rescue her and um, you know, he's got to be the strong protector, you know, get them out of this situation, you know, and she immediately falls in love with him because he's so handsome and amazing. <sighs> all right <laughs> okay i just find it i just find it amusing please tell me if my well i feel like in romance it's definitely acceptable but if i ever write like a book like this like that's not romance that's like historical fiction or some other genre where i'm trying to be like serious and non-idealistic if i ever have like such a blatantly wish fulfillment character please let me know i'll be the first I'll be the first to like roast myself because I just think I just think it's so funny and not 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 like in a, I'm not laughing at this in like a mean way or a judgmental way I'm just like it's relatable you know what I mean like we all we all like imagine characters like these we all like think about characters like these but like having the guts to put those characters out in the world couldn't be me hopefully <laughs> Like, generally, those characters are, are for my, my own eyes only. You know what I'm saying? Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't like, I don't like this contrast between Adele and Betty. And I also don't like that the other female characters are just, you know, like Lucian's wife. Personality-less annoying obstacles to the story. And I just don't like that Lucian can do pretty much whatever he wants and be excused because he's the protagonist and he's a man and he learns and grows from his mistakes, okay? Like, he's a good guy now, okay? 
And I mean, yes, but also no, if you're not going to afford that same grace to your female characters. And it's just really disappointing to come across this in a book that otherwise manages to explore the complexity of human emotions. And you know what's really annoying, though? Like, with Adele, Lucian's mistress, the evil woman, there was such an obvious route to go that would have made her character so interesting. So at one point, she she mentions, like, Coco Chanel, like, she hates Coco Chanel because Chanel is, like, her biggest rival. And you may or may not know this, but Chanel actually, yeah, she was there in Paris during World War II. And she was, at the very least, a Nazi sympathizer, <laughs> in case you didn't know. Yeah, she was very, very chummy with the Nazis, very friendly with them. And so I think obvious route would have been their fashion rivals right and like go all the way like make that like an entire subplot you know explore that story in, in more detail and maybe that could have led to some kind of like redemption for Adele as well or like go the opposite way even you know just like have that be her villain origin story or something something you know I feel like that was such an obvious story to incorporate into this book and I just am so sad that it didn't happen all right so that's everything I wanted to say about the female characters now going back to how much the narrative is willing to bend over backwards to give male characters the benefit of the doubt the final issue that I need to talk about with this book is it has a trope that I hate the most in World War II books or movies or TV shows or whatever. I don't know that there's actually a name for this and this is just what I call it, but I call it the one good Nazi trope. If you also, you know, consume fictional media about World War II, then you probably have also run into this trope before. The Nazis, you know, they're like these terrifying villains. They're this, you know, force that's like hunting down our protagonists. And then in the story, you will have a crucial moment when all is lost and the protagonists are probably going to die. And then one good Nazi steps up to help them. Maybe it's a small thing, like pretending not to notice that they're, you know, hiding in plain sight. Or a big thing, like getting them out of a concentration camp. But either way, this trope, the one good Nazi trope, shows up so often. And I hate it pretty much every time. There were a couple of Nazis in real life who weren't entirely evil. You know, famously, Oskar Schindler was a Nazi, as in he was a member of the Nazi party, but he also did save many Jewish people. However, I would argue, personally, for me, I would argue that the impact of real people like Schindler, why we focus so much on their stories, is that so few of them existed. There were very, very, very few people like Oscar Schindler, 
And so that's what makes it worthwhile to talk about them and, you know, tell their stories. If every other World War II story has one good Nazi, then it's not only unrealistic and annoying, but it also dilutes the impact of people like Oscar Schindler. And also, it makes it easier to push this ridiculous narrative that, well, you know, not every Nazi was bad. Some of them were just following orders. No, Nazis were bad. Full stop. Full stop, okay? The existence of people like Oscar Schindler does not take away from that baseline fact. Nazis were bad. It highlights that, okay? They were so bad that people like Oscar Schindler were like, oh, wait, whoa, wait a minute. What are we doing? Does that make sense? And I personally think that this one good Nazi trope, donezo, throw it out. Never use it in your books again. We have had enough of them. Okay? Good riddance. Goodbye. (laughs) I'm sorry. I know I seem really heated here, but I do consume more fiction about World War II than is probably good for me. It's kind of like true crime. I kind of have this obsession with things that I know are going to like stress me out and make me upset, but also like it's very, very compelling for me. And so I just am so, 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 so tired of this trope in particular. And I just wanted to, I just wanted to vent about it for a minute. Thank you for listening. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, this trope is in this book. And oh my gosh, okay. We need to talk about this. (sighs) Okay, so Lucian designs factories for the Nazis, right? And one of the Nazis that he interacts with because of this is named Herzog. Herzog. I don't know. I don't I don't I don't really care if I'm pronouncing his name right. He's a literal Nazi, okay? Anyway, he and Lucian slowly become friends because they kind of share similar tastes in architecture and art. They both like modern design. And then, you know, Herzog is always like sticking up for Lucian's designs whenever the more senior officers are like, let's make it more classical, let's change this. And I think this part in and of itself is fine. You know what I mean? Like Lucian becoming friends with a Nazi. I don't have a problem with that particular storyline. I mean, you know, Nazis evil. Yes, but they're like people, you know. I I don't doubt that you could find a Nazi that you share (laughs) architectural tastes with. Like whatever. That part is fine. However, I thought the natural character arc would have been for Lucian to slip up, trust the Nazi too much, and be betrayed. Because I thought the message, right, was that even when you're bonding with a Nazi, like, they're still a Nazi. I thought that was going to be the message. The fact that a Nazi doesn't change, no matter how much they like the same building styles that you do right but like at the same time you know if you're working with them and talking to them like it's understandable that you could forget that particularly you know if you're a man like Lucian who's pretty privileged right like Lucian is in a privileged situation like the Nazis trust him they're paying him 
well, they're not really paying him, but like, you know, they, they trust him to like do this stuff. Like Lucian's in no danger, essentially. Unlike many other people in Paris, like Lucian is not in danger. He is in a privileged position. And so I can understand why he would forget that he can't trust any Nazi. Herzog betraying Lucian is not what happens. What happens is Herzog is the person who ultimately saves Lucian and everyone else who's good. It's one of the worst examples of the one good Nazi trope that I have seen in a very long time, but not the worst uh, for reasons that I'm not going to get into now. But someday, someday we'll, we'll talk about this other book that has an even worse example, but that's not the point. Anyway, yeah, Herzog saving Lucian. Why? Like, you know, the message should have been that Herzog is not a good person, but it wasn't. And so, yeah. There we go. The one good Nazi, Herzog. So as you can probably tell, I did have a lot of issues with this book, but I do think it was a good starting point for this month's theme, World War II books set in Paris, because it really lived up to its name. It had so much of the complexity and nuance of the situation. It had, it had a good protagonist can't say as much for the other characters, but yeah. And in general, I think that it was, it was good. I, I did, I did enjoy aspects of it. Okay. So next week we will be discussing The Paris Orphan, which is our next World War II Paris book. And we will see how that book compares to this one, how it advances the theme, how it's similar to this book, how it's different and so on. Feel free to read it before the next episode if you want to, or not. Either way, you know, I will be super excited to talk about it because, oh boy, there's a lot to talk about. Before I forget, I do need to do the usual, like, staying up until 2am, not staying up until 2am thing. Regardless of everything else, this was a very engaging story. It was a slow burn thriller. But the author did keep me on my toes because I was constantly waiting for something bad to happen. There was a lot of suspense mounting up. So this is a staying up until 2 a.m. book. Congrats on winning this very prestigious award. <laughs> All right. I, I really can't keep a straight face whenever I say that. All right. That is officially everything for this week. This has been the 2AM Book Review Club. Thanks so much for joining me, and I'll be back next week at 2AM. Until then, have a great week, and happy book travels! Uh -huh.